As we begin this message, I want to confess to you a concern I have this morning. And it is this. I am concerned that it is going to be very easy for you to tune out this message. Why do I say that? Well, for one thing, I know I can be boring at times, but that's not what I'm referring to at this point. I am concerned that it will be easy to tune out this message because the text we are going to consider is about love for the third consecutive time in our study of 1 John. Of course, I'm not the one who has set it up this way. I didn't write the letter of 1 John. It was the Holy Spirit of God who directed John to address this all-important topic so frequently. Therefore, we would be wise to have receptive ears. So with that exhortation to all of us, let's turn together to 1 John chapter 4. Over near the end of the New Testament... If you find the book of Revelation and just go back a few small letters, 1 John chapter 4, please follow along as I read verses 17 through 21. 1 John chapter 4, verse 17. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this is the commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. As I mentioned during the introduction, this is the third paragraph now in in a row that addresses the importance of love. First, we looked at verses 7 through 11 as a unit. Then we considered last Lord's Day, verses 12 through 16, And now we are focusing on verses 17 through 21. Verses 7 through 11 begin with the exhortation, Beloved, let us love one another. The very next verse, verse 8 says, God is love. Verses 12 through 16 end with the statement, God is love. There's a sense in which you could say that this entire fourth chapter of 1 John centers around the concept of love. The opening six verses exhort us to love God's truth so much that we are willing to exercise discernment in relation to what we hear and what we believe. Then the rest of the chapter emphasizes the importance of loving one another. So the entire chapter is, in a sense, about love. Loving God's truth, verses 1 through 6, and then loving one another, verses 7 through 21. Verse 11 is the summation, where it says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. That is the point that John is stressing and driving home to us from verse 7 all the way through the end of the chapter. Everything else he says here reinforces 
or explains or elaborates on or motivates us in relation to that point. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. We don't deserve God's love, but He loves us anyway. We aren't easy to love, but God loves us anyway. We do things that grieve the Holy Spirit of God, but He loves us anyway. We say things that grieve the Holy Spirit of God, but He loves us anyway. And our love is supposed to be patterned after God's love, according to verse 11. Therefore, we cannot withhold love for one another simply because we don't think the other person deserves it. We can't withhold love for one another simply because the other person isn't easy to love. We can't withhold love for one another simply because he or she has said things that grieve us or done things that grieve us. The exhortation here in verse 11 could not be any clearer. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. God doesn't withhold his love because we don't deserve it. God doesn't withhold his love because we aren't easy to love. God doesn't withhold his love because we do things or say things that grieve him. So think about your love for other Christians. Think about it right now. Search your heart. Are there Christians that you have chosen not to love because you think they don't deserve it? Are there Christians that you have chosen not to love because they aren't easy to love? Are there Christians you have chosen not to love because they have grieved you or hurt you in some way? Is your love conditional? If it is, it's not patterned after God's love for you. And frankly, we ought to be ashamed when we think we have the right to accept God's love for us, but we withhold love from others because they don't meet our conditions. I am convinced that one of the reasons why we do that is because most of us believe that we are easier to love than we really are. Do you know what I mean by that? Most of us are naturally biased for ourselves, so we have this attitude that says, I'm not that difficult to love. Now, we may not state that verbally. We may not be willing to say that out loud, but th th that's the way we feel inside. We don't see all our own quirks and our idiosyncrasies and our flaws and our shortcomings that make us difficult to love, but boy, do we see those things in others. So in our minds, we justify our refusal to love others the way God loves us. Beloved, that is not acceptable. Most of you are not easy to love, and I put myself in that same category. But God loves us even though we don't deserve it. God loves us even though we are often difficult to love. God loves us even though we grieve Him and hurt Him and disappoint Him. And verse 11 says, If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. At this point, maybe you are saying, But Brian... It is not easy to love some of the Christians in our church or in my circle of acquaintance. I know. 
That's the point. If it were easy, then we would not have to be exhorted so often to do this. If it were easy, then there wouldn't be anything extraordinary about it. If it were easy, we would not need God's enabling, God's grace to do it because we could do it on our own. It isn't easy. It isn't natural. Which is why God's Word exhorts us so often in this area of life. It isn't easy. Which is why the Lord said it is such a powerful testimony when we do it. It isn't easy. Which is why we need God's enabling to be what we ought to be in relation to one another. It isn't easy, which is why we are commanded to remember God's example toward us. So verse 11 says, If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. We can't make excuses for our refusal to do this. We cannot justify our refusal to do this. There are no valid excuses. So John not only exhorts us to love here in this chapter. He also elaborates to explain and to motivate us to love one another. That brings us to our text this morning, which begins in verse 17. Notice how John begins this final paragraph of this chapter on love. He says, Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because... As he is, so are we in this world. The first issue we need to deal with to properly understand this verse is the word perfected. Most of our English translations, except for the NIV, use the word perfected in the first part of this verse. The NIV translates it made complete. Now, this Greek word can mean perfect in the sense of sinless perfection or absolute perfection. It can mean that, but most of the time it is not used that way in the New Testament. That's not its normal or customary usage or meaning in the New Testament. Most of the time it is used to describe maturity or fulfillment or completion, which is why the NIV translates it made complete. So when we read the first part of this verse, it's important that we don't assume that John is saying that we can reach the point where our love will be absolutely perfect. That's not really what he's saying. What he is saying is that if we love like we are supposed to love, if we love like God calls us to love, if we love in uh, in accordance with God's example, we can have confidence in the day of judgment. Now, what does he mean by that? There are two possibilities, and both of them are true, so I'll set forth both of them. Number one, John may be saying that if we love like we're supposed to love, that is, if we love like God loves, that proves that we have been born of God, born again, born from above, and we don't have any reason to fear judgment because we won't face the damning judgment of God. John 5.24 records Jesus saying these words, Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. 
In other words, if we have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, if we have trusted Him, if we have received Him and are saved, we will never stand at the great white throne judgment of God because we have already passed from spiritual death into eternal life. That's what John 5.24 is saying. The transaction has already taken place. It is not going to take place at some point in the future. It has already happened. Beloved, do you realize that if you are a child of God, if you are a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ, you will never be judged to determine whether or not you will be accepted into God's presence. You will never stand before God for Him to say yes or no. That has already been decided. That has already been determined. This very popular idea in our culture that we're going to stand before God someday and He's going to decide, well, maybe you, but not you, and that type of thing. That is not the biblical concept. When you surrendered your life to Christ and became a child of God, you were already and immediately transferred from death to life. You will never be judged to decide whether or not you will go to heaven. In light of that reality, John may be saying here in verse 17 that if we love like God loves, that proves that we are born of God, we are children of God, and we don't have any reason to fear judgment because we won't face the damning judgment of God. If we had time, we could look at the book of Revelation over uh, near the end in Revelation chapter 20 at the great white throne judgment of God where we see that every person who stands at the great white throne judgment of God is cast into hell. The purpose of judgment is to show their works, to validate the judgment, and to determine the, the uh, extent uh, of, the, of the judgment, even though it's all-inclusive in that all will go to hell. There are degrees of judgment. That's the purpose of the great white throne judgment of God. And no child of God will even be there or stand before God on that occasion. So that may be what John is referring to here in verse 17 where he says that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. But there's another possible way to take this statement by John here in verse 17. He may be saying that if our love is mature, if our love is complete, if our love is what it ought to be, if our love is like God's love, we can have confidence when we stand before Jesus Christ at the judgment seat of Christ. Not the great white throne judgment, recorded in Revelation 20, the judgment seat of Christ. You see, we will never stand before God to be judged for our sin, but the Bible does teach that all believers are going to stand before the Lord Jesus someday to have our lives evaluated for reward. That event is called, in Scripture, the judgment seat of Christ, or the Greek term, bema seat of Christ. It's not a judgment for our sins. It's not a judgment to determine whether or not we go to heaven. It's not a judgment of our evil or our wickedness because our sins were judged on the cross. It is an evaluation of our lives for reward. That may be what John has in mind here in verse 17. And if so, that would tie in perfectly with what he said back in chapter 2, verse 28, where he said, Abide in Christ so that when he appears, we can have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If our love is mature, if our love is complete, if it is patterned after God's love, we can have confidence when we stand before Christ at the judgment seat of Christ to have our lives evaluated for reward. 
Now, whichever John has in mind, whether it's the fact that we can have confidence that, that we don't even have to worry about the great white throne judgment, or we can have confidence in standing at the Bema seat of Christ, whichever John has in mind, his point is still the same. We can have confidence in the day of judgment if our love is mature and complete and what it ought to be and patterned after God's love for us. Then John adds a statement at the end of the verse. He says, because as he is, so are we in this world. In other words, Jesus came to this world to represent and display the Father's love, but now that responsibility is left to us. This is a point that Jesus made repeatedly in the upper room discourse on his final night before his crucifixion. In John 13, 35, he said, By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In chapter 17, verse 21 of John's gospel, he prayed for our unity and said that the result would be that the world may believe that the Father sent the Son. He prayed basically the same thing two verses later in John 17, 23. Jesus came to this earth and set the Father's love on display, but now that is our responsibility as his people. When we love one another, we are presenting an accurate picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. As he is, so are we in this world. We are the ones who are left in this world now to be like him. The Father was pleased with His Son. And we can have confidence that the Father is pleased with us when our love is mature or what it ought to be. That's why John adds the next verse, verse 18. He says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. This is basically saying the same thing John just said in verse 17, but this time he states it in the negative. He basically turns the coin over to the other side and says, let's look at this from the other side. Mature love gives us confidence, that's verse 17, and mature love banishes fear, that's verse 18. Two ways of saying basically the same concept. Fear of judgment is the opposite of confidence in judgment. So John wants to drive home his point by saying it another way. He says there is no fear in love because or but perfect love casts out fear. Remember, when John uses the word perfect here in this verse, he is not referring to sinless perfection or absolute perfection. If that were the case, then this verse would be basically irrelevant to us because we will never reach sinless perfection in this life. We will never reach absolute perfection in this life. That's not what John is talking about. He is talking about complete love or mature love, God's kind of love. Mature love is love that follows God's example of a love that is not based on deservedness. It is not based on worthiness. It doesn't have a bunch of set of conditions. So when we love like that, in an unconditional manner, the way the Father has loved us, it is evidence that we have been born of God and we don't need to fear judgment. That's why John adds the next phrase, because fear involves torment. Torment or punishment is not something we need to fear because that is not something we will ever face if we are children of God. 
Again, I say, beloved, if we have received Jesus Christ as our own Lord and Savior, if we have been born of God, all our sins have been forgiven. Scripture repeatedly asserts that. We will never be judged for our sins. We'll never be punished. We'll never be tormented for our sins. However, just because we will never face that torment doesn't mean that every Christian has that assurance or every Christian has that confidence. That's why John is saying this. That's why he is writing this section. If we have a complete or mature love, that is evidence that we belong to God, we are His children, and that reality should drive fear from us. It should dispel or expel fear. On the other hand, if we refuse to love like we ought to love, or if we choose not to love, or if we choose to love conditionally, we won't have this confidence. We won't have this assurance. That's why John ends this verse by saying, but he who fears has not been made perfect in love. The person who doesn't love other believers like he or she ought to is opening himself or herself up to doubts and fears regarding his own spiritual condition and maybe even his own spiritual destiny. On the other hand, the person who does love others with the love of Christ can experience a lack of fear in his heart concerning the time when he will stand before Christ. This is another reminder to me that so often, kind of put this on your radar when you read the Bible, so often when God tells us what to do, it's for our own good. God tells us to love one another like He loves us. And here we find that if we will do that, it will result in wonderful confidence and it will result in a lack of fear. So it's, it's for our own good in that sense. I mean, at least we benefit from doing what God tells us to do. Isn't it amazing when you consider how God works in this manner? So often when God tells us what to do, it is for our own good. We have such a jaded view of God sometimes. We have such a distorted view of God sometimes. We have this idea, and, and watch and see if this is in your heart. We have this idea that God gives us a bunch of commands in the Bible to make life difficult for us. God gives us all these commands just to make us miserable. Beloved, just the opposite is true. The exact opposite is true. So often when God tells us what to do, it's for our own good. When we do things God's way, when we live life God's way, when we live according to His precepts, according to His word, there are often a host of side benefits for us personally. Let me illustrate this further. After Jesus had washed the disciples' feet in John chapter 13, after he had washed the disciples' feet and taught them about humility, he made this remarkable statement. He said this, If you know these things, blessed or happy are you if you do them. Now, don't misunderstand. We don't just obey the Lord for selfish reasons. We don't just obey Him so we can be blessed. We don't just obey the Lord so we can be happy. But that is often the personal benefit in our own lives. 
In fact, every one of the Beatitudes in Matthew 5 opens with the word blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed, blessed. It's just repeated oftentimes. And that word also means, it's a legitimate way to translate it, happy, fortunate, blissful. God is so good. He could just demand that we obey Him because it's right. And there's truth to that. We ought to obey God because it's right. When God says it, we ought to obey Him. But He could simply demand that we obey Him because it's right, and yet He often blesses us for doing what we ought to do anyway. That's what John is telling us here. He exhorts us to love one another. And then he mentions the fact that living out that kind of love results in a confident lack of fear in judgment. So we should love. We should show love because we have been shown love, as John reminds us in the next verse. Notice verse 19. He says, we love him, or yours may just say we love, because he first loved us. The King James Version and the New King James Version both read, we love him because he first loved us. But most of the other English translations say, we love because he first loved us. Now both of those are true. We love him because he first loved us. We love others because he first loved us. Both are true. We love the Lord because he first loved us. He was the initiator in the relationship that we have with him. We didn't seek Him, even though we may may have thought that's what we were doing. He sought us. Isaiah 53, 6 reminds us that all we, like sheep, have gone astray. We were away from Him, and some of us were even running from Him. But He loved us, sought us, and brought us into a relationship with Him. And John says here, that's why we love Him. We love Him because He first loved us. As a result of his magnanimous love that has been showered upon us, we also love one another. We love, period, not just him. We love because he first loved us, which is John's main point in this context. We love one another on the horizontal plane because he first loved us on this vertical plane. He is our example. He is our motivation. How can we possibly justify withholding love from one another when God did not withhold his love from us? Since he loved us, even when we were undeserving, we can and should love one another. Since he loved us, when we were not easy to love, we can and should love one another. Since he loved us, when we were hurtful toward him, we can and should love one another. That's John's main point here. Because God loved us, we ought to pass on that love to one another. We have no right to be a spiritual cul-de-sac. That is, the love comes in and it stops there. There's no through street. It doesn't go anywhere. It is supposed to come to us, through us, to other people. In fact, the person who hates his brother or sister in Christ doesn't really love God either, regardless of what he claims. That's why John adds verse 20. He says, If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. 
For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he, this could either be worded as a question, how can he love God whom he has not seen, or as a statement, he cannot love God whom he has not seen. John, with these words, is pointing out the utter contradiction in our lives when we claim to love God, but we don't love our brother or sister in Christ. And mark it, beloved, he's not merely being hypothetical here. This is not merely hypothetical. There are Christians, sadly, there are Christians who won't have anything to do with other Christians, yet they claim to love God. There are Christians who are bitter toward other Christians, yet they claim to love God. There are Christians who are unloving, mean toward other Christians, yet they claim to love God. John says that such a claim is a lie. He doesn't mince words. He doesn't hesitate to be bold and and blatant. It is a lie, he says. It's a sham. You're deceiving yourself. And that's very easy to do. It's very easy to claim to love God because you know what? He isn't here. We can't see him. He's transcendent. So it's easy to claim to love him because it's not something that's tangible. However, our brothers and sisters in Christ are right here in our lives and our relationship to them is something that is tangible. If we claim to love them, but we are unforgiving, it's obvious that we're making a false claim. Everyone can see that. If we claim to love them, but we are mean-spirited, then it's obvious that we're making a false claim. If we claim to love them, but we, we avoid them, we don't talk to them, it's obvious that we're making a false claim. It's not as obvious when we claim to love God because people don't see how we treat Him. People don't see whether we talk to Him or not. So John's point is that if we don't love someone we can see and someone to whom we can show our love tangibly, then it's ludicrous to believe that we can love someone we've never seen. In a sense, it's harder to show our love to God because we can't see Him. He isn't here where we can interact with Him tangibly. Our relationship with Him is very ethereal. But our relationship with our brothers in Christ is much more tangible. So if we don't love our brothers in Christ who are right here in our lives, then it's a false claim to say that we love God when He is invisible. And he is intangible. To say it another way, loving God is something that is somewhat abstract. Have you ever thought about that? Loving God is really somewhat abstract. You can't hug him. You can't do anything tangible in that sense. Loving God is something that is somewhat abstract. But loving our brothers in Christ is something that is very concrete. Therefore, if we hate our brother who is right here with us where we can show love tangibly, but we claim to love God, the Holy Spirit, through John, says we're lying. We're lying. We're lying to ourselves at the very minimum. And maybe if we're, depending on what we say or claim, we're lying to others. Beloved, this is such an important point that John is making. Understand his his argumentation here. It is so easy for us to to claim to love God while at the same time we don't love our brothers and sisters in Christ. The Holy Spirit tells us here that such a claim is empty. It is deceitful. Don't hide behind the claim that you love God 
when you refuse to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. It is a complete contradiction. It's a blatant contradiction. And because it is, John really wraps up his powerful teaching about the importance of loving believers with this striking statement to close out the chapter. Verse 21. And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God, remember he was just talking about the previous verse, this claim to love God. So this is the commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Typical of John's pattern of teaching, he basically says the same thing he just said, but he words it differently to make sure we get it. This is very common in John's style of teaching. Unlike Paul, who was very linear, he would make a point and use a lot of logic to support his point, and he would move along in a linear fashion. John does move along, but he circles back often. We saw that in verses 17 and 18. He makes a statement in verse 17 about boldness and judgment, and then he kind of circles back around and talks about fear being cast out, saying basically the same thing, different ways, so we get it. That's what he does here. He's basically here in verse 21 saying something very similar to what he said in verse 20, but he words it differently to make sure we get it. The first thing he says in this verse is that loving our brothers and sisters in Christ is a command. Notice that. This is this commandment we have from him. This is not just a suggestion for consideration. This is not just a suggestion for contemplation. God commands this of each one of his children. There are no exceptions. So this means you if you're a child of God. Listen, if you're sitting here this morning and you are a Christian, a child of God, or you think you are, then this command is for you. God commands you to love his people. God commands you to love his children. Don't make excuses. Don't rationalize. Don't justify your refusal to do this. God commands you to love your brothers and sisters in Christ with all their faults, with all their flaws, with all their shortcomings. However, important point here, this does not mean that you would never say anything about those issues to that person. Because genuine love sometimes means you ought to say something. Not always. It's a judgment call based on a number of factors from Scripture and your relationship to the person. But I'm not implying here, Scripture's not implying here, that loving our brothers and sisters in Christ means that we just accept sinful behavior and never say anything about it. That's not the case. So this does not mean you will never say anything about those issues if you see them in a a brother or sister with whom you have a relationship. Because genuine love sometimes means you ought to say something. That would be the most loving thing you could do. But regardless of the imperfections, this is the point. Regardless of the imperfections, God commands you to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the first thing the Holy Spirit says through John. The second thing here in this verse that the Holy Spirit says is that God doesn't want you to claim to love him if you don't love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Does it surprise you to hear that? Let me say it again. God doesn't want you to claim to love him if you don't love your brothers and sisters in Christ. That statement ought to be surprising to some Christians. It should be. 
Because there are Christians who have justified in their minds this disconnect in their lives. They've completely justified it. They've completely accepted it. They say they love God, but they don't love their brothers and sisters in Christ. I was reading an article this week uh, in, in the paper about, as a lot of you have been following this, this whole phenomenon of Tim Tebow and all the attention he's getting for his stand for Christ. And one guy, just this one statement in the article caught my attention where this guy says, oh yeah, uh, I'm really excited for him because I'm a Christian too. I just don't go to church anywhere. And he went on to say, because you know, all, there are no good Christians. And, all. and I thought, what a disconnect. This is exactly what John is talking about. Oh, I love God. I'm a Christian. I just don't go to church anywhere because I don't love any Christians. That's a complete disconnect. And so many justify that in their minds. They, they justify the disconnect. They justify the contradiction. They say they love God, but they don't love their brothers and sisters in Christ. Not only that, I know some Christian husbands who claim to love God, but they don't love their wives. And I know some Christian wives who claim to love God, but they don't love their husbands. How do they live with that disconnect? How do they live with that contradiction? Somehow they justify, they justify it in their minds. And God knows. God knows that this kind of thing goes on in the lives of some of his children. He knows us. That's why he says what he does here. Don't claim to love God. This is what he's saying. Don't claim to love God. Don't sing songs that say you love God when you don't love his children. Yet this is exactly what some Christians do. They come to church Sunday after Sunday and they sing songs that express love to God, worship songs, hymns, choruses that say they love God, but they don't love some of their brothers and sisters in Christ, maybe not even their own spouses. Beloved, God says don't do that. Don't do that. If you love God, you must love your brother or sister in Christ also. That's the message of this passage. Verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Let's bow together as we close. As you bow your head and close your eyes, just to think for a few minutes, to meditate upon what you have seen in Scripture with your own eyes, what you have heard with your ears, It's always a good time here at the end of our gathering just to reflect, to evaluate, to consider your own life, your own spiritual condition. And the starting point for all of us would be this. Do I really know God? Do I really know Jesus Christ? Am I a child of God? Not because, you know, I was born in the West, in the the U.S. or somewhere in the West. or No, do... Have I been born of God? Have I received Jesus Christ personally? And that is the basis for my confidence that I am a child of God. That's what Scripture says. The basis of our confidence that we belong to God is faith in Jesus Christ. The only way to be a child of God, the only way to be a Christian, not, as, not in religion, but in relationship, is to receive Jesus Christ. So if you're here this morning and you you don't know Christ personally as your own Lord and Savior, I would encourage you, I would urge you, this very moment, right there where you are seated in the quietness of your own heart before God, just between you and Him, ask Jesus Christ to come into your life, 
to forgive you of your sins, to grant you his salvation, and then to begin making you the person he wants you to be. That's the, that's the foundation of our evaluation. From there, if you do know you're a child of God, if you're confident that you belong to Christ, then all of us have been challenged by the Holy Spirit this morning concerning the way we love, the importance of love. So do you love the way God has shown love to you? Undeserving, unmerited, even in spite of the fact that we hurt him and grieve him, he loves us. He has shown love to us. Is that the way you love? If you do, then you can have confidence. No need to fear judgment. It's a great benefit of mature love. However the Spirit of God has spoken to your heart this morning, make sure you wrestle through that issue. Deal with it before the Lord. Don't just close your Bible. Walk out of here unchanged. Father, thank you for speaking to us so clearly, so specifically, so directly. Thank you for guiding John to write such bold words as, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. Father, thank you for challenging our hearts in the way we need to be challenged because it is easy for us to claim to love you but not love our brothers and sisters in Christ. And that contradiction, that disconnect is clearly, from what we've seen this morning, not acceptable in your sight. So grant us the grace, the strength to love like you have loved us, to have a mature love. And in closing this morning, we want to pray for anyone who is here with us. Surely in a crowd this size, there are some who do not know you as their father. They can't rightly call you their father because they have never received your son, the Lord Jesus. May your Holy Spirit do his work of conviction and and enlightening so that he or she would come to know Jesus Christ today, in whose name we pray. Amen.